In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 37. With Bezalel and Aholiab as foremen, construction of the tabernacle and its furnishings, according to the designs Yahweh gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, is now underway. This section details the building of the items needed for inside the holy and most holy places, the Ark of the Covenant, the table, the lampstand, and the altar of incense. Good morning. Today is Monday, January 16th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning, we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is sponsored by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Now listen, they have tons of resources in many languages, all available for the asking. So when I say they do good work, I mean it. Visit lhfmissions.org to learn more about how they can support your ministry or mission, or how you can support them. This morning, folks, please join me in welcoming our returning guest, the Rev. Thomas Exxon, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Pastor Eckstein, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Good to be back. So you're up there in Jamestown, North Dakota. I'm down here in Minnesota. Uh, we share a little bit of the same kind of weather, although <laughs> I used to live in northern Minnesota about, uh, uh, what was it, maybe an hour and a half due east of Fargo. Where are you in relation to Fargo? Well, uh, if people find Fargo on a map, just go straight west on I-94, about 100 miles, and you'll go right past Jamestown. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, we have quite a bit to get through today, some interesting stuff, but if you would start our time off in prayer, that'd be wonderful. Yeah, Heavenly Father, we come before you today, uh, and as we approach uh, this text today and learn about uh, various things in the temple, the, the ark, uh, the table of showbread, the lampstand, the altar of incense, help us to see how all of these ultimately point to your son, uh, who who is uh, the one who tabernacled among us, the word made flesh, uh, and, and fulfills the old Testament in a variety of ways uh, as it points ahead to him. We thank you, Lord, that, that through Jesus, we, we have the light of your word, uh, and the forgiveness, uh, that is pictured in the old Testament fulfilled in this death and resurrection for us. Uh, uh, bless us as we learn from your uh, word today that we might see how, uh, all of this has been fulfilled in your son for us. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, anything you want to do to lay the foundation for our text today, we're going to take it in about four parts because that's how it's naturally divided in the ESV. But anything you want to say before we begin? Yeah. Um, yeah here in Exodus chapter 37, first of all, you, you, you have a couple guys mentioned, uh, uh, Bethalel and then Oholiab. And uh, we hear about them first back in, in Exodus 31. Uh, but uh, uh, we, we're going to hear about them uh, various other times, uh, and, and this is one example here in Exodus 37. And uh, these were two men who were, were gifted by God uh, to be skilled craftsmen uh, and artisans. Of course, they trained other men who had similar skills, but, but these were the primary two that God uh, chose. And so, you know, as we go through the study today, we're going to learn that, you know, uh, I think this is a reminder that God gives all of us various special gifts and talents that serve his church in a variety of ways. And then one other thing, as we get into Exodus 37, some people might think, boy, uh, this sounds familiar. I think I've heard of this before, where you have. Uh, earlier in Exodus, uh, Moses from God gives all these specific directions about how to build the temple and the various uh, 
artifacts in the temple. And now we're getting it again. And you might wonder, well, well, why does God need to repeat himself with such a detail? Well, you know, uh, God does it a lot in Holy Scripture. You know, you think about it. He, he didn't give us just one gospel. He gave us four. And, and we, we, we have three gospels called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they, they repeat a lot of the similar information. Synoptic means you, you can see them alongside each other and see various uh, uh, similar uh, material. Uh, but, but God is a God who loves to repeat over and over again the important things that we need to know simply because uh, we're prone to ignore them or forget them. And so here in Exodus 37, we see how important uh, the details uh, are for the building of the tabernacle and the various artifacts, ultimately, because they point ahead to Jesus. Oh, absolutely. And not only are the details important because of what they represent or what they are pointing forward to, or who they are pointing forward to, I should say, it's also really neat to see that the reason why they match so closely to what was given earlier is that Moses is communicating that things were built according to the way God designed. So God gives his description. Now, while they're building it, the description, as you said, sort of repeats itself, but it's also showing us that they obeyed the Lord, which is really important for a people who up to this point haven't had a good track record of obeying the Lord. And well, they're going to have some problems in the future too, we know about. But as it is, why don't we go ahead and read some of the text and we'll begin with verse one and go through verse nine. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside, and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold for its four feet, two rings on its one side and two rings on its other side. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold, and put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half was its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold, and he made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. Little repetition right there even in the description, right, brother? You know, he could have just said, Bezalel made it as God described, right? And then we would just go on to the next section. But as you so rightfully pointed out, we get a rehashing of all the details, uh, so take us more into that. What's going on here? What are these details pointing forward to? Well, of course, when we're dealing with the Ark, this is so important uh, because uh, the Ark is, is ultimately placed in the Holy of Holies. And this is where uh, many of the special blood sacrifices, especially on the Day of Atonement, uh, were offered. The blood being poured over the mercy seat um, uh, uh, as, as a sign uh, of God's forgiveness for his people. But, but pressing that even though forgiveness is a gift for us, free for us, uh, there was a price involved. And so ultimately, uh, the, the, the sacrifices that uh, are, are uh, the blood, the sacrificial blood that's poured of the ark um, is a sign that, that the payment uh, would be made by God himself of the sacrifices ultimately pointing ahead to his son. And of course, uh, within the Ark of the Covenant, you have various items like some of them, the manna, uh, uh, Aaron, 
Bud is later placed, Aaron Staff is later placed in there, but we have especially, uh, eventually the, the, the tablets of the law are placed in there. Uh, the very law that accuses us and shows us that we have sinned against God and deserve his wrath. And yet this is where the sacrificial blood is poured to show that, that the very curse, uh, uh, that our sin deserves is being paid for by God when he places that curse on, on someone innocent who is ultimately his son, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And just a couple other comments I want to make about the ark, uh, as we see how it uh, is fulfilled in the new Testament. It's interesting that in, uh, well, uh, in the book of Roman, uh, chapter, uh, uh, three, verse 25, um, the apostle Paul talks about, uh, the, the atoning sacrifice or the sacrifice of atonement, um, uh, 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 uh made by the blood of Jesus. But, but the Greek word is the kilotherion, which, which was the Greek word that was used by the Jews to refer to the atonement cover, uh, of the ark. In, in the Holy of Holies. I find that very interesting. You don't necessarily get that in the English. Um, but when you see this Greek word helasterion, it's actually referring, um, uh, to the, to, uh, the, the cover of, of, of the ark where the sacrificial blood was poured. And so Paul is clearly here showing how the, 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 the ark and the blood poured over that was fulfilled in Jesus. And then one other interesting connection, uh, in Luke's gospel, uh, chapter 18, verse 13, uh, the famous story about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Uh, most of us know uh, what the tax collector said. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But what's interesting is when he asks God to have mercy on him, he doesn't use the, the normal Greek word for mercy. He uses a very rare Greek word, uh, uh which is related to the noun hilasterion. In other words, the, 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 the tax collector is actually saying, um, uh, uh, be propitious toward me. Um, forgive me for the sake of the sacrifice. So it, it's almost like Jesus is, is having the tax collector use this very rare verb to point out that, that the mercy he's asking for is something that is pictured by the temple and fulfilled by Jesus. And of course, the, the Pharisee in the story doesn't get this at all, but the tax collector realizes and it. There's a reason that they're both at the temple. You know, uh, 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 again, this, this tax collector, he, he knows he needs forgiveness and that forgiveness is a gift, but it's been paid for uh, by the one pictured by the blood offered in the Holy of Holies. So we get all of this pointing to Christ with the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, and what an amazing you know way that God is pointing forward, hinting forward toward what's going to come with all of these details. And what I always found interesting, and we've discussed it on other episodes, is that the Ark of the Covenant is made in a manner that's not uncommon to ancient religions. In fact, we find one similarly sized in the tomb of Tutankhamun. And this idea of uh, having this Ark with this top on, on, on the top, that would typically be like a throne or a footstool for an idol. And yet not an idol. There's no idol of the one true God because the idols are nothing. And so instead we see these cherubim who typically will guard the throne of a deity, but God is the God not of just one people, or God is not just the God of, you know, one town like they often would think of, or one nation, but rather God is the God of all. And of course the mercy seat, the, the idea of mercy seat comes from Luther's translation 
um, you know, this atonement seat, the covering, the place of atonement, all of that, of course, points forward to God's work. So I always just find it fascinating. And the reason I bring this up is certainly not to instill doubt in anybody, but to let you know that the workmen, for instance, Bezalel or Bezalel and, uh, and Aholiab and all of these guys, they were probably putting the skills that God gave them to work in Egypt before coming out here. They're making these things for the Egyptian gods, and now God is sanctifying them, repurposing them for his better use, which yeah. we see him do all the time. You know, we just got done with Christmas, and people always get worked up over the Christmas season of, well, you know, this part is pagan and this part isn't. And while there are right. lots of good arguments to why that couldn't be or why it shouldn't be, who cares if it is, right? God is a God who is in control of all things. So for someone to say, well, trees are pagan. Well, trees are pagan. You know, God is the God of all creation. Trees are gods. Right. And the Ark of the Covenant's the same way. And he covers it in this precious metal of gold. God doesn't care about wealth, but the people do. And so this gold represents the importance of what it means to sacrifice for God and, of course, to put him above all others. In fact, I really like the way you say God takes something that, that may have been used in a pagan way and, and uses it to show the truth. I think it, even the plagues on Egypt, you know, uh, we know the Egyptians worshipped the Nile, they worshipped the sun, they worshipped various animals, and yet God uses these very things to discipline them. You know, turning the water of the Nile into blood, which I think is interesting, you know, uh, how blood is finally later used uh, in uh, uh, the Old Testament. But then also uh, uh, the, uh, parting the water of the Red Sea, you know, showing that, that God is the God uh, of the water of all creation. In fact, you know, obviously when we're reading Exodus, we're reading this in the bigger picture of creation itself. So, so you know, uh, the, the God who comes and has his glory dwell in the Holy of Holies over the Ark of the Covenant, he's not some local pagan God that had some beginning in time, but this is the, the, the God of all creation who, who doesn't even need a place to dwell, but has his glory dwell in the Holy of Holies over the Ark so that he can be close to his people and, and, and redeem them. And so yeah, God takes these uh, pagan things and uses them to, to show people the truth. Right, and he does this for our benefit. God doesn't need any of this, but he does it so that, as you said, he can dwell amongst his people, which is the whole purpose. And we actually get that understanding very clearly laid out when we read the consecration of the priests, which was before the 12 days of Christmas that we just went through. But we talked about how even in the consecration, with all that blood, you mentioned blood, but all that sanctifying, it says that God wanted to dwell among his people, and that is the purpose. And we think of that today, too, with the same ideas when people say, well, you know, God is everywhere, so I don't have to go to worship. But here in worship, in the Word, in the sacrament, God is there for you. He wants to dwell with you in a very special way. Of course, even during this time, those people uh, would have understood that God was everywhere and saw everything and knew everything and even heard their prayers. But he tabernacles, right, dwells among them uh, for a very specific reason. And if nothing else, to give them this understanding that God can be incarnate. He can be there amongst yeah. his people. And then one day, God's going to literally be incarnate as he takes on human flesh. Yeah. In fact, that I think is the proper way to understand what Jesus means when he says, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. He's not making a comment about his omnipresence, which is true. But what, he, what he's really saying is, I'm going to be with you in the ways 
I have promised through baptism, through the preaching of the word, by giving you my body and blood in the Lord's Supper. Uh, and the reason we need these uh, special uh, uh, contacts with God is that the, the very fact that God is omnipresent means that he's not accessible to us finite beings in his omnipresent state. Uh, a, a God that is so big and so vast, uh, uh, eternal, uh, we, we simply cannot have access to him, the God that is everywhere. And so God gum comes down to our level in these very specific ways so that we can have contact with him. So that, that's one reason Christians come to church. Uh, uh, yes, God exists everywhere, but it, it's through baptism, through the preaching of the word, absolution, through the Lord's Supper, that he is present in a very special way for us. And you don't get that in any other way. So we have the Ark of the Covenant here has a special place in the most holy of holies in the tabernacle. So when we discuss the the dimensions for the tabernacle and its furnishings sort of the first time around, you guys will recall at home that the whole courtyard and tabernacle was a little bit over a third, around a third of a football field size, American football field size. And then inside that that courtyard was the tabernacle itself with its design, and then inside the tabernacle, it was divided into the most holy of places, and inside that holy of holies is going to be placed this ark. I just imagine what it was like for Bezalel and the other craftsmen who are putting these things together, um, what it was like to be putting together something that was going to be so uh, important to their worship, central, revered because of how God was using it. You know, it, it reminds me of the way that today we'll say set up for the Lord's Supper. And, we're, and we're, we have our elders or altar guild or whoever does it, the pastor, but as they're putting right. out the elements, it's just bread, it's just wine, but it's going to be used in this amazing way by God. And then afterward, after the, the meal, if there's leftovers, then, you know, we always debate, well, you know, how do we know when the real presence ceases? Well, who cares? This is something that was yep. used by God. And so we set it apart as holy. We either eat it as it's instructed or we dispose of it in a respectful way. But right. I just I can't imagine the mercy seat, the mercy seat, the ark building something that later we know two people, you know, drop dead because of their improper worship or you know it, it's right. it's just this fascinating thing in my head to think about making these things. I don't know, I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think that's why God goes out of His way to, to quote unquote repeat Himself is that He He wants people to take very seriously. Uh, all of this detail, because ultimately it, it's going to be fulfilled in Christ. And I find it interesting. You you mentioned how you know two people who were you know didn't uh, take uh, uh, things seriously as they should with the ark and, and 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 resulted in death. I find it interesting that Paul talks about the the misuse of the Lord's Supper can result in taking it to your judgment rather than to your 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 blessing. And so so you know even in the New Testament we see that that. Uh, uh, we, we need to approach these means of grace in, in repentant faith uh, to do so in a, in a, in a state of unbelief uh, can, can result in great spiritual harm. And so uh, today, too, we show great respect and holiness for the means of grace, especially because they're the fulfillment of all these things we're reading about in Exodus 37. That connection to Paul's warning about taking it unworthily is a great connection that you made. I hadn't thought of it. But it is true. You know, even in our practices, people might look at us and say, well, you know, you're you're too restrictive or you're too, I don't know if anybody's actually said the word too reverent, but 
For instance, when I got to my congregation, one of the things that they had been accustomed to doing was once uh, the communion was over, they would take the little individual cups and just throw them in the trash, the ones that had been used. And, you know, and I said, you know, let's let's start with just washing these out, right? We're going to pour the water outside, but let's start with that. Now, is that a law to burden someone's heart? No, of course not. But at the same time, we have to think carefully about the way we do things. And so when we have closed communion in our church body, and so when someone comes in and we say, you know, today's not the best day to take it, why don't we talk? People see that as unloving, and yet, no, it's not unloving. I'm certainly people can administer it in an unloving way, but the practice itself is not unloving because we believe the things that we teach. And this is this is all part of it about taking serious these sacred set apart things and spaces and doing things uh, in reverence toward God. And so anyway, we see that though as they go through their wilderness trek. I love how there's holes or rings rather put into the side of this thing and big posts cuz they're going to have to carry it. And some of this is practical, right? He made poles of acacia wood. But then those practical things, just the things that you're going to have to carry the thing around, it's the only reason they exist. There's no real spiritual meaning besides this is what you're going to haul it around with, and yet they're overlaid with gold. That's just amazing to me. Right. And and even though we have no uh, thus saith the Lord uh, about, you know, how we build our churches, there's a reason that many Christians throughout history have have made the places of worship uh, uh, with, with very ornate, uh, you know, uh, decorations. You, you think of, I remember back in 2013, my wife and I, uh, uh, on our 25th anniversary, we went to Italy uh, and we saw some of these awesome uh, cathedrals, and 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 I thought, you know, some people might think, oh, what a waste of money and and resources, but no. They did this because they wanted to know that they, they were in a special place, a sacred space, uh, when they were coming to the place where God's means of grace would be offered. So so even though we have no New Testament law about how we have to build our churches, uh, many Christians did uh, build their places, their sacred spaces, with, with much decorative art and, 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 and holy decoration precisely because they wanted to recognize that this, this is a special place and there are holy things going on here. Yeah, amen to that. I mean, people people who might balk at the idea of having, you know, ornate decorations in their own church, when they go on vacation, they'll certainly take pictures of all the cathedrals and the beautiful places, and it makes you want to go, well, why do you do that? And that's because these places feel otherworldly, which is part of the reason why God is setting apart these things. You know, scarcity, uh, you know, breeds this idea of, of importance, and so the fact that People aren't going to be really seeing this arc really ever again, some of them. It's important. Right. It's important that uh, they, they recognize its importance because it's kept separate. And so I also right. imagine, and this is just in my imagination, folks, but I also imagine while Bezalel is putting this thing together, everybody's wanting to get a look. I wonder if there was a crowd, you know, <laughs> surrounding him. I don't, I don't know if he's doing it in private or out, you know, out in the courtyard where, or where the courtyard's going to be because they haven't built that yet. I don't know what the conditions are, but I just imagine some gawkers going, wow, look, that's going to be, that's going to be the ark. And there was some, some mystery to it. And I, and I think that's important. Humans need that mystery. Absolutely. Well, why don't we keep reading? We're going to add just a few more verses before the break and get started on those before we take it. So this is going to be verses 10 through 16, which we'll add to the conversation. He also made the table of acacia wood, 
Two cubits was its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold, and made a molding of gold around it. And he made a rim around it uh, a handbreadth wide, and made a molding of gold around the rim. He cast for it four rings of gold, and fastened the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame were the rings, as holders for the poles to carry the table. He made the poles of acacia wood to carry the table, and overlaid them with gold. And he made the vessels of pure gold that were to be on the table, its plates and dishes for incense, and its bowls and flagons with which to pour drink offerings. Wow, lots and lots and lots of gold. Um, interesting, you know, they, they must have really got a haul from the Egyptians. Right, exactly. And, you know, uh, obviously there's a lot of things going on here mentioned uh, at this table, but this is actually the table. The, the specific detail isn't given here, but earlier we know from uh, the uh, descriptions that Moses gives earlier that this is the table for the showbread, where uh, 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 loaves of bread, 12, uh, each for the 12 uh, tribes of Israel, uh, were there. And then, then what would eventually be eaten by the priest, but, but this, this bread also has a, a, a picture of that being, uh, is being fulfilled in Jesus. You know, what we think of Jesus talking about how he is the bread of life. He is the true manna from heaven. Uh, he is the one who feeds us, uh, with himself. We think of John six, you know, uh, eating my body, drinking my blood. And, and so here, uh, we, 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 uh, again, get a picture uh, of how God uh, 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 nurtures us spiritually, ultimately with his own son, uh, not only by his, his teaching, uh, but but uh, we think of the Lord's Supper where Jesus gives us his own body and blood through bread and wine. And so here we see another example of how God works through ordinary earthly things that we need, food, uh, to give us holy spiritual uh, blessing. Yeah, the description of that showbread the first time we went through it was very fascinating in that you know it is set up to represent the the 12 tribes of israel and yeah i i love that connection jesus says i'm the bread of life we lutherans and in living in the christian age or the church age i think we often jump to communion on that which uh certainly nothing wrong with that but i think we miss out if we don't recognize that small detail that you point out you know him being the bread of life would really ring different in the ears of faithful Jews at the time, in the first century, than it would, you know, sacramental Lutherans today. So, Leah, let's not lose that connection because that's extremely important. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, and it's interesting, you know, that th this was holy food for uh, the holy priests who were set aside. But, but now in the New Testament, you know, you think of First Peter, we're all priests of God. And, and, and we all uh, have access uh, to his holiness through Christ. And, and, and we, we all partake of the bread, which is Christ himself. And, and, and so we see how, how, how this table points ahead to not only it, uh, it, it being fulfilled in Christ, but how through Christ we all uh, now can enter the holies uh, of holies and, and, and have this close access to God and be fed by him. So it, it, it's a wonderful picture of Christ. That's a great picture for us to keep in our mind and ponder on as we take just a few minutes for a break. So, folks, do not go anywhere, because when we come back, Pastor Eckstein and I will continue with Exodus chapter 37. We'll see you on the other side.
What's happening in Germany's Lutheran churches, where Iranian refugees are flooding through the doors? What new opportunities for sharing the Christian faith are arising in communist Vietnam, and how can my church play a part? Mission speakers, all LCMS pastors from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, will come to your church, free of charge, to preach and lead Bible studies tying into this exciting work going on all around the world. To schedule your speaker, call LHF at 800-554-0723. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. And with me today is the Reverend Thomas Eckstein, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Folks, did you know that you can contact me directly with your questions and comments? It's true. Email me at pastorboo at gmail.com, or you can visit me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash philboo. I love hearing from you, and I'll answer all your questions either on or off the air. Now, Pastor Eckstein, before the break, you just made this a beautiful vision for us to recognize that we as now a, a nation of priests, the priesthood of all believers— we have access directly to that most holy of holy places. The the veil has been torn into. Uh, we yeah. then are invited to the blessed table to eat of the bread of which only priests can eat. And uh, just what a beautiful connection we have with our God because of Jesus Christ. I it just yeah. and I think that we lose something if while we're reading through say Exodus. We go, oh, yeah, you know what, this again, all these details, all these blueprints, they don't matter anymore. Well, they've been fulfilled, and in that way they do matter. And, and it really grounds us with our ancestors who are right now in the desert. Yes, and, and I think it's important to state that um, it's not that, uh, you know, we're blessed, whereas the people in the Old Testament didn't have God's blessing. No, they had it. But there was still this separation, uh, this distance from the Holy of Holies for, for most of the people, except for the priest. But, but as the book of Hebrew teaches, even the priest had to offer sacrifices for themselves as a reminder that they too were sinners who could only access the Holy of Holies by the grace of God in Christ. And, and so what we see in the Old Testament is that even though these people were saved through uh, faith in the coming Christ, just as we are saved through faith in the Christ who has come and, and will come again, um, yet there was this definite separation because it was a way of God saying, yes, the Savior's coming, but but the ultimate uh, sacrifice hasn't been offered yet. Um, uh, the, 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 the curtain can't be torn in two uh, until that sacrifice is fulfilled. So all this is preparatory. And, and I, I think of how the book of Hebrews says that even though you have believers in the Old Testament, um, they did not uh, get to experience what we now have in its fulfilled state. And it's only together with us that, that, that they uh, have this blessing. You know, we, we will spend eternity together with all these Old Testament saints, uh, all of us uh, uh, standing before the glorious throne of God. But in the Old Testament at that time, there was still this separation um, uh, until the actual sacrifice was actually made. And then, like you said, when, when Jesus says it is finished, to Telestai in the Greek, you know, the curtain of the temple is torn in two and uh, no more separation. No more separation. We just talked about Jesus being the bread of life. This next section also easily connects to Jesus if we see it in the right light. Let's go ahead and add some more verses to the conversation. This is going to be verses 17 through 24, the lampstand. 
He also made the lampstand of pure gold. He made the lampstand of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers were of one piece with it. And there were six branches going out of its side, three branches of the lampstand out on the one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out on the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower, on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower, on the other branch. So for the six branches going out from the lampstand, uh, and on the lampstand itself were four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out of it. Their calyxes and their branches were of one piece with it. The whole of it was a single piece of hammered work of pure gold, and he made its seven lampstands and its tongs and its trays of pure gold, and he made it and all its utensils out of a talent of pure gold. Wow. So here we have the lampstand. And I'm one of those guys where if I ever order like Ikea type furniture, my wife has to read and interpret the instructions for me. And it's like, just tell me what to do and I'll do all the assembly. This is sometimes, well, this is sometimes the feeling I'm getting when I'm reading these instructions and I'm and, and now I know that on the mountain we have this indication that the Lord actually showed these things to Moses in addition to describing them. But now poor, you know, poor Az, uh, Azalel, you know, he's putting these things together. I just hope Moses drew a picture for him. But with all that said, <laughs> this is one of those small cases where I can picture it in my mind. And actually, even you at home, I bet all of you have seen this multiple times. Uh, tell us about it, Pastor. Yeah, you know, what, what I find amazing about this, the, the skill that God must have gave uh, these two gentlemen, because, um, uh, uh, you know, unlike like some of the other things where, where there was just a, uh, an overlay of gold, uh, here we, we have the lamp being made out of pure gold. Uh, and so they're shaping uh, out of one piece of pure gold, this ornate, very detailed, decorative lamp. And so the, just the skill that was necessary. And, and so, you know, again, we thank God for all the different special skills and gifts he gives his people today through which he blesses his church. You know, I, I think of how God uses certain musicians uh, to enhance worship, you know, and not all of us have those gifts, uh, but uh, God uh, gives certain people the skills they need to, to contribute to the church in unique ways, and we certainly see that here. And then, of course, the lamp itself, you know, we end up having uh, seven uh, burning lamps, you, you have the, the vertical stem, and then you have three from one side and three from the other, you know, seven total light. And of course, the number seven is, is important in Hebrew numerology. It's the, it's the number of, of perfection. Uh, and uh, it, it's interesting that when you read the book of Revelation, the first three chapters, you know, it, it talks about uh, how many churches, seven churches, and each of them have a lamp stand, uh, a light. And, and so here we see that, that, uh, the, the light of this lamp served much more than just a practical necessity. Obviously, you know, back in those days when they didn't have electricity, you needed to have lamps to see. So there was a, a practical purpose for it. But, but God uses his creation of light. You think of in the beginning, let there be light. He, he uses his own creation of light to point ahead to the ultimate light, um, which is the, the spiritual light he gives us from his, not only his written word, but from the incarnate word, the word made flesh, you know, Jesus himself talks about being the light of the world. And, uh, and then, uh, as we, uh, proclaim him to others, uh, we also get to be light, spiritual lights in this world of darkness. 
so so this lamp is a reminder to us that just as we need physical light uh, to be able to 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 uh, banish the darkness so we can uh, do what needs to be done, uh, even more than that, we need the spiritual light that comes from Christ himself so that we can see the truth of God and the way of salvation that he's given us. Yeah, light that Jesus is the light and the you know the light of the world. This all this makes this connection. Jesus himself says the same things, and we see here this beautiful. You talked about it being one big piece of gold, which I assume that you know they melted down. There's all this pure gold. Uh, for those keeping score at home, a talent is seventy five pounds of gold, uh, and that is a ton. Um, just in case you're curious, if you wanted to buy today 75 pounds of gold, that would cost you 1.9 million U.S. dollars. So that is quite a bit. And so some people, just looking on the practical side, say, oh, it just seems so unreasonable that these these people would have had 75 pounds of gold. But what's interesting about that is I think sometimes people imagine the Israelites going through the wilderness as this sort of small band of ragtag people, not, you know, almost two and a half million people by some estimates. And right. uh, one, re one thing I saw is uh, if uh, assuming 600,000 adult males were uh, able to give one-fifth of an ounce of silver to supply the needed uh, amount for the tabernacle— um, then really the people, the same people, uh, and that's a half a shekel, by the way. We see that in the next chapter tomorrow. But but the same people would have had to give less than one-seventeenth of an ounce of gold. So less right. than one-seventeenth of an ounce of gold for each person. So that makes it a lot more reasonable, I think, for folks at home if you're thinking about where did all this gold come from? Well, obviously from the Egyptians. Right. But they wouldn't have even had to give up a ton. Each family would have contributed to this. And I think there's something about that, too. Every family is yeah. contributing. And, yeah, and go we, ahead. We, we think of the expensive budgets of our own congregations that, that, that are important yeah. because, you know, that's how we do our mission. And yet uh, it, it's every family of God, according to the resources that God has given them, uh, uh, making, uh, uh, you know, their sacrificial offering uh, according to their own means. And, 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 and through all this, God's people working together as one family can accomplish great things. So like you said, you know, each Israel, you know, each family of Israel giving just a little bit of the gold that they got from the Egyptians, you know, results in being able to make this immensely, you know, uh, expensive, uh, uh, piece of, 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 uh, artistic work, uh, in the lamp. And so, you know, as God's people work together, uh, giving according to their means, uh, uh accomplish great things through it and and for also folks at home just for clarification the hebrew word for this lampstand is one you've heard before menorah it is when you think of a menorah that is the pretty common interpretation of what this thing looked like with the seven candles and the three branches on each side so we yeah we have these we see these menorahs all the time all over as a symbol of judaism but i don't think a menorah would be completely out of place in your pastor's office or on your home because of what it ultimately represents and is fulfilled by, and that is, of course, Christ as the, as the light of the world. Right. And you think how in our churches, you know, even though we have electric lights nowadays, uh, uh, many of our churches still use candles. Now, we don't have to. God's Word doesn't say we have to. But, but there's a reason for that. We, we, we like having this historical connection uh, from the past 
And then there's something about how, you know, just like our ancestors had, had burning light, uh, a fire, uh, uh, symbolic of, of, of Christ. You know, we, we still do that today. Again, again, not because we have to, but because Christians willingly choose to do this as a way of having a, a historical connection with those who have gone before. And uh, I know I, I, some congregations I know have actually replaced uh, burning candles with electric light candles. Fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But the point is, the reason we even have candles is, is, is the symbolism historically that that uh, has. Uh, just like uh, before electricity, for most of the history of the world, people had to burn candles in churches. You know, as long as we needed that natural light, it was like, well, let's also see how, what this symbolizes. You know, uh, uh, God commanded them to make this lamp not merely because they needed to see in the dark, but also because it was symbolic of the light of his word. And we, we still use uh, light candles for that reason today. Yeah, people think of the candles, you know, oh, it's it's just so beautiful and it's warm and it's it's organic because it's flickering and and it, there's some nice beauty to it. As we have already covered uh, last month, you know, God sets up His tabernacle and the clothing investments of His priests and all the things. It's not just for His glory, which it certainly is, but it's also for beauty, as the Bible says, for beauty and glory. Right. So there is really something to be said about a beautiful candelabra or menorah of candles versus, uh, say, I don't know what I don't know what we'd use some some end table lamps on each side of the altar. I mean, it would provide the same purpose if you had two nice decorative end table lamps. I don't know if anybody does that. I, now, now I'll have to Google that later. But but that wouldn't give off the same vibe as the kids say, right? It, it's the right. candles that connect us with the past, but ultimately is connecting us with this lampstand and all of it symbolizing Christ. So yeah, that's a that's an interesting connection. I'm glad you made it. We have uh, plenty of time left in the show, but I do want to go ahead and get the last... A couple verses, which is the last really paragraph of our chapter, because then it turns to the altar of incense. He made the altar of incense of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit and its breadth was a cubit. It was square and two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it. He overlaid it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns, and he made a molding of gold around it. And he made two rings of gold on it, under its molding, on two opposite sides of it, as holders for the poles with which to carry it. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He made the holy anointing oil also, and the pure fragrant incense blended as by the perfumer. All right, that section ends. Uh, we'll continue this section tomorrow as he goes on to make the altar of burnt offering. But here we have now four different things, the 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 ark, the table, the lampstand, the altar of incense, these are the internal furnishings, so to speak. Uh, what do you have on this altar of incense, this kind of squared-off table where they're going to burn the incense? Yes, and, and, and you know, I, I remember when I was back at seminary, uh, a while back now, <laughs> um, uh, one of our professors made the comment about um, you know, how Many of the things in, in the tabernacle had a practical purpose, but then God used them to, to give them a spiritual purpose and symbolism. And one comment he made is, you know, I can understand why God had incense in there because he says, you want to think about it with all the animal sacrifices going on. Can you imagine the smell? <laughs> and, right. you know, even though it doesn't say this specifically in, in Exodus, you know, you, you can stop and think about it. You know, there was definitely probably a practical reason for having this aromatic incense in there. Uh, 
to cover up the, the, the smell of death. And I, I, and then he went on to make the point, you know, uh, obviously the, all the sacrificing would have had this horrible smell to it. And death is a horrible thing. It has a horrible smell and it's the wages of sin from a spiritual point of view. But then you have this incense covering up the smell of death, uh, uh, giving us this beautiful aroma, um, that reminds us of God's mercy and love that, that not only forgives our sins, but rescues us from death itself. I thought that was very interesting. And then you not only have the, the, the aroma of the incense, and I, I think of how in Ephesians 5, 1, Paul talked about how Christ gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So, so Christ's own sacrifice uh, becomes, it described as something that was a fragrant offering appealing to the senses. Uh, and then uh, in addition, you not only had the, the smell of the incense, but the visual uh, uh, picture of the smoke rising up. And, and you, you think of how we sing an evening prayer from our hymnal, quoting from the Psalms, you know, let my prayer rise before you as incense. And so, you know, as, as the smell of the incense covered up the smell of death and as the visual smoke uh, symbolized our prayers going to God, um, you know, uh, this is ultimately all fulfilled in Christ who, who intercedes for us, whose, whose prayer on our behalf goes to the Father and intercedes for us and his, whose own sacrifice becomes a fragrant offering that's pleasant to God uh, and results in our salvation. So there's so much uh, symbolism here, wh which helps you understand why there are many Christians around the world, again, not because God says we have to do it, but there are many Christians who still use incense in their service. Now, I know a lot of Lutherans, we, we don't do that. Um, uh, personally, I'm allergic to it, <laughs> we don't. but, uh, but, uh, but I, I can understand why some Christians do it. Uh, again, that connection with the past and the symbolism that incense had, especially as it was fulfilled in Christ. And we even see the New Testament uh, describing the, the aroma of Christ's sacrifice. And again, our prayers rising before God as incense. So there's a lot here uh, that, that we can learn from. I use incense occasionally in my services for those same symbolic reasons, and it is this beautiful lifting up of our prayers as the evening sacrifice. We think of the priests, they made two sacrifices a day, one in the morning and one in the evening. And so for these evening services, we use this visual imagery. But as you said, it's all connected in Christ. The the You make a good point about having to have the incense as just a, a way to counteract the smell of all the sacrifices. You know, sometimes we're tempted to think that the sacrifices would have smelled like a good barbecue going all the time, but not when you're talking about, you know, tissues and sinews and hair and dung, sometimes, yeah. all the just stuff that would be involved with a sacrifice. Um, I'm When I was in Connecticut, I was in Connecticut for about seven years, and I would go to the colonial days. And at the colonial days where they displayed all the different ways that people lived in our country at the beginning of our country when we first, uh, when Europeans first came over. And they said one of the things they used to do is take different fragrant flowers and put them in a little pouch around their neck. And the reason why, especially ladies, would do this is for a couple reasons. One, it made them smell better. Bathing wasn't right. exactly very often. But then they could also hold it to their nose to uh, when they were doing some of their more less fragrant work. And, and we think even back farther into the plague doctors who would stuff their masks with with different herbs and things to try to block out the smell of death and other things. So, yeah, it's funny oh, yeah. that you have this juxtaposition between this horrid smell that the people don't like, yet God describes it 
as a pleasing aroma before him. But naturally, what's the pleasing aroma? Symbolically, the smoke's going up. Of course, it's not reaching God in a physical way, but but more spiritually, the pleasing aroma is the obedience of the people, right? This is this is why Jesus later picks this up when he talks about I desire, you know, he quotes, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Exactly. So so we see here that all of this is to point forward to disciplining us and disciplining them to be ready to receive God's mercy. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you mentioned uh, how uh, 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 contrary to the idea that the Old Testament sacrifices would, would smell like a good bar- barbecue, I think it would be the opposite. And the reason I say that, I remember when I was in grade school, I, I, was, I had a summer school class once where we, we would tour various businesses in town. And one day they took us to a slaughterhouse where they would butcher cattle. And I had never seen a, a, a cow actually be butchered. You know, I'd eaten hamburger and beef my whole life, but I never actually saw the the butchering process and neither had many of my classmates. And, and, uh, not only do I have memories of that, cause it was just very shocking to see a cow be killed and slaughtered. But one thing I remember is the smell, uh, mm. it was not pleasant in any way, shape or form. And, and, and it reminded me, you know, death does not smell good. And, and, and so I met, just imagine, uh, with all the sacrifices being offered in the temple, the reminder of death and, and the ugliness of it. And yet the incense covering that, not, not just for a practical reason, but reminding us how Christ's own ugly sacrifice, uh, result in something beautiful. Uh, 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 Jesus takes death itself and turns it upside down and, and, and conquers it for us so that that which was, was, uh, repugnant to us, uh, and now is conquered and, and Christ now his sacrifice becomes a pleasant aroma of forgiveness and life. So again, uh, all this symbolized with, with the incense. And so it's not surprising again, why m- many modern Christians uh, to a greater or lesser degree will still use incense in their service. Yeah. It's a shame that you are allergic. As you said, I do have to tell you though, that there are hypoallergenic, uh, incense blends out there. Really? Now, so I recommend you do some Googling on it. Uh, you know, and, and it's funny too, because I've, I use them for like high feast and during Lent and times when it might aid in people's worship. Certainly we don't want to do things that distract from it, especially since there's no thus saith the Lord. But I do have to admit that once I brought out uh, the the uh, thurifer where you would burn the incense, the censer, and uh, people, a couple people already started coughing just upon seeing it, although it wasn't lit. So <laughs> sometimes I wonder if uh, it might be a little uh, psychosomatic, but yeah, psychosomatic, there yeah. You go. <laughs> but anyway, we, we do have these beautiful practices. There's nothing wrong with them. There's also nothing wrong with omitting them. Just whatever we do, we should do in a way that teaches the people. And so we've learned a lot from you today through this chapter. We only have a couple minutes left in the program. Anything else you want to cover before we finish today? Just one thing, especially, you know, as you continue to take people through Exodus in the future here, you know, sometimes we, when we think of Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament, uh, I think we make a mistake. Uh, a lot of times we think, well, there's, there's a few, a handful of prophetic verbal prophecies that point ahead to Jesus. And then the rest of the Old Testament is just so much, you know, um, meaningless detail. You know, we, 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 we you know, treasure those few uh, prophecies that point ahead to Jesus very specifically, but then the rest of it is just sort of filler information. Wrong. The whole Old Testament, um, the history of Israel, events, people, places, and especially as we see here, uh, the temple artifacts and the ceremonies 
it's all about Jesus. It all points ahead to him. And in fact, um, I'm actually going through a sermon series in the book of Exodus with my congregation that we've been doing for several months. And it's amazing how much the New Testament points back to the Exodus, the, the events of the Exodus as being fulfilled in Jesus. And so what, what we're learning today by just looking at these uh, artifacts of the temple, the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant, the showbread, the, the incense, uh, and, and the like, uh, uh, it's all there for a reason. It's not stuff we should just skip over. It all is part of pointing the head to Jesus and what he has done for us. What a beautiful point to end on, and uh, blessings to you for doing that sermon series, because it's great. It's wonderful to have people connected, uh, or have, have people be able to understand the true connection that Christ has with fulfilling all the things of old. Folks at home, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Thomas Eckstein. He's the pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Brother, thank you for being on the show. Hey, my privilege. Thank you. Tomorrow, we turn the page to chapter 38, and we'll witness the construction of the courtyard and its furnishings. By the way, did you know that there are only three episodes remaining in our Exodus study? We have come a long way. So just as a heads up, a sneak peek and a moose-bouche, so to speak, our new topic will begin on Friday, January 20th with the Book of Ruth, followed immediately by the Book of Esther. These will be two short studies that will take us through the first week of February. So be sure to tune in and let others know about the program if you think they would be interested. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong hand.